Europe is at the heart of a fresh wave of COVID-19 and many millions of Europeans are still unvaccinated. The World Health Organization says Europe is the only region in the world where COVID-19 deaths increased last week. Across the continent, health authorities and politicians fear that the latest surge could be as deadly as previous ones. Those fears have sparked talk of mandatory vaccinations, lockdowns and travel restrictions again. Austria taking some of the most drastic steps yet to curb the spread. Anger is growing and people are losing patience. The Belgian capital Brussels was today the latest European city to see unrest over tightened coronavirus restrictions. Protests have also taken place in Austria, Italy and Croatia. And in the Netherlands, there is now a third night of unrest. So we saw rioting in a number of different countries and some fairly serious violence, uh, particularly in the Netherlands, also some street furniture being burned and so on in Brussels. Naomi O'Leary is the Irish Times Europe correspondent. I saw one of the protests myself actually in the Netherlands and it told me something really interesting, which I think it's important to pay attention to the kind of discrete national factors that are at work. For example, in the march that I saw, it was being led by young men dressed in black and the the sound of their chants and the way that they moved and how coordinated that they were, to me, was recognisable as football ultras. Football ultras have played an important role in protests and street actions in the Netherlands during the pandemic at various points. The Netherlands had, in the days prior to these protests, banned fans from football stadiums, so fans couldn't go to see matches anymore. There was also a ban on fireworks, uh, which are extremely popular during the New Year's period. And this is a country which often sees unrest over that particular issue, curtailment of New Year's Eve festivities, such as bonfire restrictions. You might think it's just Northern Ireland that gets riots (laughs) over bonfire restrictions, but it's not. They happen in in, uh, the Netherlands as well. And then in Belgium, it was very, very disparate. You had some kind of kooky hippie type of wellness people. You had LGBT flags. Um, You also had uh, far-right people chanting about leftist rats. And you had uh, quite a lot of anti-Semitic symbology, some posters about Zionist conspiracies and people wearing the yellow star that was used during the Holocaust. Also some young people who are just sort of out to have a good time, which is something that we saw during the summer with uh, protests by young people who just kind of wanted to party. And in France, it was different again. Um, So in France, the crossover between the COVID protests and the Gilets Jaunes that preceded them um, and almost sort of seamlessly blended into them is very strong and significant. You see similar symbology and similar groups taking part and also similar patterns in that they always have a weekly Saturday march, which has become a kind of ritual. Does all these protests happening in multiple countries because of a tightening of public health restrictions as a result of COVID. Just how bad is COVID getting across Europe now? Because we tend to be totally fixated for obvious reasons on what's happening in Ireland. But what's happening across Europe? We see particularly high levels of infections in Germany, Austria, Hungary, Slovenia, the Netherlands, Liechtenstein as well, Denmark, 
th- those are the places where the level of infections is kind of peaking. There's a very, very clear correlation between the level of vaccination and the number of deaths in that the greater the percentage of your population that's vaccinated, the lower the number of deaths as a proportion of the size of your population. So you're seeing the worst numbers of death rates towards the east of Europe, the places where they have the lowest levels of vaccination and the greatest numbers of infections. So deaths in the European region are particularly high in Russia, Ukraine, Poland. They're also quite high in Germany. How are the health systems holding up in in some of these countries? I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of pressure on the Irish health system, but is that the same everywhere else? I think you know, vaccination really helps to keep people out of ICU, right? But there's always going to be vulnerable people in society. Even if you have a 100% vaccination rate, you still have old people, you still have people with weak immune systems, and you still have people that are just sort of randomly vulnerable in a way that we don't really quite understand because this is quite a new disease. So you have ICUs under pressure wherever infections are extremely high. It's easier if you have more people vaccinated because the unvaccinated population is way, way overrepresented in ICU. It seems the figures suggest that you're just way more likely to end up in there if you're not vaccinated. And this causes problems in various countries, depending on how great your ICU capacities are. In the wave in Eastern Europe, um, hospitals really got into trouble. There was also difficulties in places like morgues with just handling the number of people that were dying. Right now in Germany, there's a real problem with staffing levels because of the amount of burnout among healthcare staff. The number of a specialized staff that you need to actually man the ICUs has been really affected by COVID itself and just, you know, the incredibly pressurized circumstances that people have been working under for a really long time now. In Austria, the director of the Salzburg region uh, hospitals said that they were setting up a team to do triage for ICU. And what that means is that they're setting up a team to make the really difficult decision of choosing between patients in a circumstance where they don't have a bed for everybody. Uh, So if, if you simply don't have enough ICU beds, then you have to start making decisions. In Italy, when things got really bad, that was something that had to come into play as well. And there was advice given to doctors on how to do that. And generally the guidelines are, you know, who would benefit from it most, who would be most likely to survive, that kind of thing. So the fact that you've got a team being set up to make those decisions indicates that, uh, you know, the healthcare system there is expecting that they're just not going to have enough capacity to manage everybody who needs help. So they, you know, they'll, they'll be able to do something, but it just won't be optimal. And as you say, that's reminiscent of the very early days of the crisis in northern Italy when they were triaging people in car parks and they were basically making life or death decisions in those terrible, terrible circumstances. Is that why Austria has announced effectively a full lockdown and decided that mandatory vaccines are coming down the tracks? All governments in Europe were really, really reluctant to reintroduce restrictions not just because basically nobody likes them and, you know, there's a lot of public fatigue with them, 
but also for economic reasons. Uh, they wanted to avoid that and everybody was really optimistic at the start of autumn that they could be avoided. So what's driving this shift is the situation in hospitals and the ICU capacity. In Austria, we saw things escalate over about 10 days where initially they moved to a new COVID pass system where the COVID pass that you use to get into restaurants and so on, it would be reduced so that it would only count if you had been vaccinated or you had recovered from COVID-19 and a test no longer counted. This was seen as a way of trying to incentivize more people to get vaccinated to, to push up that 64% rate. Then shortly after that, it was announced that there would be a stay-at-home advice uh, for everybody who wasn't vaccinated. And then again, not long after that, it toughened again so that there's a lockdown until December 13th. Lockdown means different things in different countries, but what it means in Austria is that people uh, should not leave home unless they're going to school, going to work, going to pick up groceries, uh, going for a walk, or other reasons that are deemed essential. Only two-thirds of Austria's population are vaccinated, one of the lowest rates in Western Europe. The new Chancellor wants to change that by making vaccination compulsory from February. There are too many political forces in this country which vehemently, massively and publicly oppose vaccination. This is irresponsible. This is actually an attack on our health system and whipped up by radical anti-vaxxers, by fake news. Too many among us didn't get vaccinated. Talk to me about these mandatory vaccines that uh, Austria is planning to introduce in the springtime. That seems extreme. Why is it deemed necessary there? And do you think that's likely to be something that we see in other countries across the European Union? It's not clear yet exactly how it would work legally. The uh, Austrian government is currently working on the legal basis for it, but it could involve, say, fines for people who don't get vaccinated. I think the rationale for it is to try to come out the other side of the crisis. And if people have the option to protect themselves and others against the virus, um, you know, to compel them to take it. It's a controversial um, policy, I would say. Some countries have gone a little step in that direction. So, for example, France has introduced vaccine mandates for some categories of workers, including health workers. They have to be vaccinated. Some other kinds of uh, public service workers as well that are like state employees. Uh, Greece has a vaccine mandate for health workers as well. And Italy has introduced the COVID pass for all employees, whether that's um, public or private, which in effect means that you have to pay quite a lot continually for tests if you're not vaccinated. So it's, it's a kind of a strong nudge towards vaccination. Other countries have a really different approach to this. You know, the levels are so low in parts of Eastern Europe that you'd wonder whether it was enforceable with that many people not voluntarily taking it. In Belgium, the Prime Minister, Alexander de Croo, has made it clear that he's against this. He actually never supported the COVID pass, really, to begin with. He wasn't actually thrilled about the idea of a COVID pass itself. Uh, vaccination is a choice. It's a wise choice. Uh, but it's still a personal choice. I believe that it's always better to convince people with facts 
and not to the obligation. Belgium is one of the reasons why the pass is designed as it is, to include testing and recovery as well as vaccination, so that it's not just about vaccination and there are kind of other options on there. Tell me, is there a plan in place across the European Union or in the countries that you're familiar with to roll out a booster programme for a third uh, COVID jab? I think almost all EU countries are already giving boosters for vulnerable people I think, and the elderly. I think that started some time ago. The European Medicines Agency has already cleared, I think, Pfizer and Moderna for booster shots. And um, some countries are already moving towards just opening them up for everybody uh, who wants one. Some countries as well are moving towards incentivizing people to take those boosters. Uh, So for example, Greece is making its COVID pass sort of go out of date for people who are aged over 60, unless they get a booster. So you have to have a vaccine less than six months ago in order for your COVID pass to sort of stay valid if you're over 60 in Greece. And you mentioned the whole COVID pass thing that was rolled out across Europe and the digital COVID cert was held up as an example of the EU operating as a single and solid unit. Is it still being regarded as a solid system across the European Union today or are modifications and tweaks making it less reliable as a a means for people to travel and go about their business? So the EU structure, I suppose, when it comes to the COVID pass is that what the Uh, what was done at a centralized EU level was to design the infrastructure of a system that would recognize barcodes and to introduce standardized data. So what data you needed to collect and health systems needed to collect to create such a certificate. Then what those passes are used for domestically is something that's chosen by national governments. And there's no sort of centralized European decision-making on that. The EU has always tried to coordinate their use when it comes to travel to try and make rules consistent across the block. But ultimately, it's up to national governments to decide because it's just, it's their competence, it's their power to do so. And in effect, they've always kind of gone their own way on that. It's never been coherent across the EU. Different countries have just made different decisions. Good morning, Good morning. Good morning, everyone. This week, actually, the European ministers of various different member states will be discussing and the European Commission will also be proposing uh, potential tweaks to the COVID pass. Uh, We don't know yet what uh, tweaks could be suggested, but different countries have different asks. Um, Some countries have asked for infection numbers not to be taken into account as a risk when you're talking about like different risk areas that it should be based on hospitalization because they argue that um, with vaccination the number of infections doesn't matter so much anymore then others would like for the right to travel to be linked more to individual vaccination status so instead of you're coming from a region where infections are very high and therefore there should be some restriction on you. It should be more to do with this person is vaccinated, therefore they should have no restriction on them. So just kind of tweaking it that way. 
we'll have to see what the proposals are and whether there's going to be agreement on this. Um, I think that different countries have very different views on whether it should be tweaked and how and whether you should add booster shots and so Mm. on. So we'll have to see. And is there any talk of travel being curtailed in the weeks and months ahead? Because, of course, that was one of the big gains, if you like, for, for the broader European society that we were able to move about relatively freely from the middle of July. Is there any talk of that being curtailed in any individual country or indeed across the European Union? As soon as you have national lockdowns, it's not very convenient for tourists to start arriving. If everything is closed, you know, if the shops are closed and so on. So I think at the moment for the duration of Austria's lockdown, um, there are some restrictions on people going there, as far as I know. This is something that individual governments decide. There's always been slightly different views on how much of an influence travel is on infections. What we can see from Ireland's history, for example, is that if you look at the strains of COVID-19 that were circulating in the country, when travel really mattered was when infections were really low in Ireland um, because the infections were reseeded by cases that came from abroad, a, a strain that originated in Spain. So once you've got a really high level of infections, there's an argument that travel doesn't matter as much, but it's ultimately something that governments will decide. So what's the European Commission's view of developments in recent weeks when it comes to these COVID surges? And does it see itself as having any role to play or is it leaving everything up to the member states and taking that kind of backseat approach? Yeah, I mean, it's always been slightly awkward, the European Union response to the pandemic, because the areas of health policy and also border travel policy, those are strictly national powers. That means that you you can have 27 countries moving in 27 different directions, even though they might share a common travel area and so on, and a certain amount of, of policy. So that can make things a little bit seem incoherent or awkward. The European Commission generally tries to coordinate and make proposals and suggest things to keep things as coherent as possible, not in terms of national health measures, but in terms of travel, just because its job is to try to guard free movement in the EU. So it tries to do that. Um, Aside from that, the European Commission just says, you know, we're situated in Belgium, so we follow the Belgian rules on COVID. And it's up to the member state governments to set whatever their rules are. And finally, are people where you are as fed up with the pandemic as people in Ireland are? I mean, is everyone just tired of the ongoing crisis? Definitely. I mean, look, it's a pandemic. It's, you know, it's a historical event that everyone is living through. It's always grim at this time of year when, you know, the, the nights get longer and the days get shorter. And, you know, after the great hope, you know, that was associated with the mass vaccination campaigns. The attitude, I think, across Europe was with the vaccinations that once you had vaccinated people, then COVID was no longer a serious disease for most people. And therefore, you could just return to the status quo of prior to the pandemic. But, you know, so, so that's in effect what happened in many countries. The, the restrictions were removed and people just sort of resumed their prior ways of, of going about life. But that doesn't take into account a couple of things. It doesn't take into account the percentage of unvaccinated population, whether that's people who choose not to have a vaccination or, you know, children 
who aren't qualified for a vaccination. It also doesn't take into account the continued number of people who just remain vulnerable to this disease, whether they're vaccinated or not, for underlying reasons. And, you know, this disease continued to spread. It, it also didn't take into account the level of havoc that this disease can play on society, short of deaths and hospitalization. You no, know, there's a lot that it does. It just makes people sick. It puts people out of action, um, closes businesses, takes down health workers and people out of the system for weeks at a time, causes people long-term chronic conditions and so on. Um, so there was a lot of wishful thinking and there wasn't enough focus on uh, retaining the other non-pharmaceutical measures, which you know the World Health Organization and the major health bodies have always said will still be essential to stop the virus from spreading, to try and keep it under control. Something that stuck with me, which I was told by a senior microbiologist called Alex Friedrich way back in 2020 sometime, before we had vaccines, before there was even a positive trial involving a vaccine. Um, so when the virus first arrived and there wasn't that much known about it, um, he actually went and spoke to loads of people who work in veterinary medicine. Because although coronaviruses was a really fringe area of human health and human medicine, it had long been a massive, like, huge issue for, like, people in agriculture and veterinary medicine because they're very common among farm animals. Um, so he went and sort of talked to those veterinary experts on coronaviruses about, you know, how do you deal with them? And what Dr. Friedrich told me then was that, you know, he didn't think that vaccination was going to be the silver bullet here because coronaviruses are famously difficult to vaccinate against when it comes to farm animals. You know, they've come up with vaccines and they give them vaccines and the vaccines work, but they only work for like a part of their body. So you might be vaccinated in your lungs, but not in your nose. And so they continue to spread and they're just notoriously difficult to stamp out. There's just still so much we don't know about this virus. The research that's been done into it has been done at this stage, you know, under kind of emergency situation. So it's still going to be some years until we find out exactly um, you know, the things to do with the dynamics of how it's spread. Um, and there's still a lot of mystery associated with it. Naomi O'Leary, thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks. That's it for today. In the news, we'll be back on Friday. <laughs>